Well, good morning, Australia. Hey, this is so much fun. We're in Australia and we're with you this morning. What a great privilege it is for my wife and I, Meg, to be with you this morning again to celebrate, I suppose, or to mark the end of your instep conference. And so this is since this is the last time we'll be together, I just really want to thank Jeff and Valme for their incredible hospitality. Thank you for invitation. It's been great. We've gotten to know each other. We're Facebook friends now, too. That's pretty neat. Oh, yeah. And uh, got to spend a lot of time with them, visit your city and some of the cool koalas and kangaroos. I, <laughs> that was like one of the highlights of my life, I'm telling you. That was just like surreal. And, uh, and then meeting all of you. I mean, what a what a great people you are. It's just been very, very neat to meet you, to see what the Lord is doing here. I want to tell you, I think that Australians are extremely friendly. Really, you guys take it. I mean, seriously, I think it's been very exciting. We live in a country, we, we turned on the news uh, yesterday, and uh, the French news, and strikes. Everyone's like upset over everything all the time, it seems. And down here, it seems like people are genuinely much happier. So it's been really a pleasure to be here and to, and to meet you. And Stephen Sue also has been great meeting you. Thank you for your very inspiring message yesterday. That was great. Um, love to see long-term missionaries hanging in there, continuing the work. And it's great to see that God has called you here in this country. And um, it's just been great to get to know you a little bit. So with that, I'd like to pray and then uh, give my last topic for today. Lord, thank you so much for... This day, thank you for the way you've moved in all of our hearts. Thank you for what we've learned. Thank you for the challenge. And Lord, thank you for uh, you, Jesus Christ, uh, who died and rose again for us. Thank you, Lord, for having given us your son for the salvation we have in Christ. And Lord, as we part today, we want to finish on the note of the importance of proclaiming the gospel around us, Lord, even if it's hard. And so I pray you would inspire us today greatly. And we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last topic that I was asked to speak on is this, the hand of God in missions. The hand of God in missions. As we have talked this weekend about evangelism and missions, it seemed appropriate to end with probably one of the greatest missionary stories of all times. Um, now, I really like the topic of missions, and that makes sense since I am a missionary, okay? So I'm thrilled to be able to speak on this, though I must admit that missions, even though I'm a professional missionary, is hard for me. It's hard. Doing evangelism, I've already mentioned, is not an easy task. It's not easy for me. It's not easy for you because I hate rejection. I hate being rejected. So as soon as you open your mouth and you talk about Jesus Christ, very often I'm great at ending conversations, okay? So it's, it's really complicated sometimes. So I would like to help us, again, you know me, I like courage. I like uh, talking about courage. And so therefore I would like to look at one of the greatest missionaries in the Bible, a man whose life really typifies missions. Now he was an amazing missionary, and God used him in the most amazing way. He's very, very famous actually. In fact, the entire world has probably heard about him, even if they don't believe in him, though he lived many, many centuries ago. Now, what do we know about him? Well, we know that he had a dramatic call. He actually heard the voice of God speak to him. That's pretty cool. He was also called to a foreign land. 
specifically and by name. He actually witnessed one of the most fantastic miracles recorded in all of Scripture. Through his ministry, he witnessed one of the great spiritual revivals in the history of the world. Yet, amazingly, the same man is recorded in Scripture as having blatantly disobeyed God. In fact, hold, hold on to your seat. This missionary actually hated the people he was being called to. That's pretty significant. He hated them. And yet God called him to these people. And this missionary, on top of everything, had a major anger problem. Okay, God was still working on his sanctification. And on top of it all, the Bible tells us that he was so depressed, he actually tried to commit suicide. Really. He tried to commit suicide, but he failed because God intervened to save his life. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the great missionary, Jonah. Jonah. Amazing, isn't it? And I believe that Jonah is one of the greatest and best biblical examples of a missionary because I believe that Jonah went through what most missionaries actually go through one way or another in their ministries. The Jonah syndrome is common. So I could have titled this message, The Life of a Very Ordinary Missionary, Jonah. And this is one of the reasons I think that the story is in the Bible, to encourage us. That's what I would like to try and attempt to do today. To encourage us not to give up, to continue the task, the task of missions until the Lord returns. Now, before we get to the story, let me tell you a little bit. I, I, I kind of like apologetics a bit. I would like to talk about the reliability of the book of Jonah, because this may come up as you talk to people. Before we look at them, let, let's talk about the historical reliability of the book. You can imagine with the incredible miracle described in the book that this is one of the books that has been most attacked by liberals who have tried to discredit the Bible. They're saying there is no way a fish in the Mediterranean Ocean swallowed a guy. There is no way. And that he stayed alive. Here are some of their suggestions of what really happened. For example, there is the dream theory. They say Jonah had a dream that a fish was swallowing him, but it never really happened. There's the myth theory. They say that the story of Jonah and the whale had nothing more than, was nothing more than the story of Hercules and the sea monster. Then there's the another boat theory. Jonah did take a boat to Tarsus that capsized, but he was rescued by another boat, the bow of which was shaped like a big fish. So he thought he was in a big fish. Then there's the dead fish theory. This is my favorite, okay? Jonah did capsize. He was sinking. But he happened to see a large dead fish floating near him, so he got up on it and used the dead fish as a lifeboat. Now the question is, why do people criticize the book of Jonah so much? Well, because you see, if you accept that this miracle happened, then you must accept the, accept the possibility of the existence of a personal God. And if you do that, then you are allowing for moral accountability to a holy, personal God. And if you do that, then you will have to be open to consider that God's solution to a fallen moral nature of man is His Son, Jesus Christ. 
So you see, that's the problem. If you accept that Jonah is real, it really happened, then you've got a real moral issue with God. So, liberals can't go there. They decided to try to discredit the Bible. Jonah is a great place to start. Now, how do you contradict that? Go with me to Matthew 12. Real simple. Real simple to show them that they're wrong. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Matthew 12:39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Wow! This is so cool, folks, because Jesus explains that Jonah was a real person who really spent three days in the belly of a fish and came out alive. Now, the moment you discredit the historicity of Jonah is the day you discredit the historicity of Jesus. Because if Jonah did not exist, and if the miracle of the fish did not happen, then Jesus either is wrong or he lied. And that is a real problem for the Son of God, who is absolutely holy. You can't get around it. You accept either the entire Bible is real or you reject it all. You can't just pick out pieces that you like and pieces that you don't like. It's all or nothing. Jesus affirmed the historicity of the story of Jonah, saying that it really happened. I personally believe Jesus. Okay, that's me. All right. So I hope you believe Jesus too on this. So with that, let's go back to the story of Jonah. And I would like to go through this pretty quickly and try and draw out principles. To look at the hand of God in missions, I would like to see it through the story of Jonah and draw out seven fundamental principles to remember as we consider missions. Now, you may maybe one day be called as a missionary, or you may not be called as a missionary, but as a Christian, you should be interested in missions because we've been called to win the world for Christ, to proclaim the gospel. So, these are seven fundamental principles to remember as we consider missions. Okay? Number one. Number one, missions starts with God. Mission starts with God. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. We're going to spend a lot of time on the first few verses, and then we're going to really go through the book quickly, okay? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This is great. You see, the idea of missions comes from God. God wants souls to be one. God wants people to turn to Him for redemption. This is not a man-made idea, but a God-made idea. Now, 
You see, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It started with God. Now, how did the word come to Jonah? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say. It just came. Could it have been an audible voice? Possibly. Like for many other prophets. But in any case, the word of the Lord came to him. And all that we see here is that evangelism is a mandate from God. This is the way God designed salvation. Men are born sinful through Adam because Adam sinned. They are cut off and alienated from God. They cannot even seek God according to Romans 2. They are dead in their sins and trespasses according to Ephesians 2. So God came up with a plan to reconcile men to himself. He came up with a plan to purchase those souls back to himself. And he sent a Messiah. And he predicted that Messiah in the Old Testament, brought him in the New Testament. And people through faith can embrace Jesus Christ and be forgiven of their sins. Who came up with that idea? Who came up with that idea? God came up with that idea. So that's a really important thing to remember. When we go on this crazy mission to win people to Christ and they start rejecting you, remember, it was God's idea. It's not my idea. It's God's idea. Number two, second principle. Missions is accomplished through men or people. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. It's interesting, isn't it, that the word of the Lord came to who? To Jonah. Here's a revolutionary concept, okay? Not only did God come up with a plan to win souls back to himself, but his plan calls for people like you and me to do the job. Now, I already talked about this earlier on at the beginning of the weekend. You know, could God have come up with another plan? Yes, he could have, but he didn't. This is the plan. This is God's plan. You know these verses as well as I do. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And who is he telling them? Who is he saying this to? His disciples. So, disciples are to make disciples. This is the plan of God. It's just as simple as that. Steve reminded us of Romans 10, 13 through 15 yesterday. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call him on in whom they have not believed? How will they believe on him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. This is revolutionary. I mean, it really isn't, but I mean, it is. God wants people to do the job. So what do we know about Jonah? This is interesting. What do we know about Jonah? We're in the year 760 B.C., which is almost 3,000 years ago. 
Second Kings 14.25 tells us he was a prophet in the north of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II, in the same general period of Amos, Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah. Second Kings 14.25 also tells us he was from the city of Gath-Hefer, which is located directly to the left of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Megiddo, if you've had a chance to go there. It seems to have been, he was, seems to have been raised in a family of believers. He was a son of Amittai, which means, in the original, he who affirms the truth. His name, Jonah, means dove. Was he actually gentle by nature? That's possible. We don't know, but that's quite possible. So it's interesting to think that God could have, since he wanted Nineveh saved, he could have spoken directly to Nineveh, right? Through like a loud voice. Nineveh, this is God. Repent. He could have done that. But he didn't. He called a guy, Jonah, to do the job. To go tell Nineveh. That's the plan. And if you are being prompted by God to be a missionary, sometimes you'll kind of wonder, Lord, did you make a mistake? Why me? Welcome to the club. <laughs> How often do we go, why did we embark on this crazy adventure? Trying to win French people to Christ? I mean, they say that France is one of the hardest mission fields in the world. They call it the graveyard of missionaries. We, there's a website right now in France that's been up there for a year. It's missionaries sign up for this thing when they want to sell all their stuff when they're leaving the field. I mean, they are leaving way faster than they're coming. And we're going, whoa, what have we done? Oh, this was God's idea. And he picks men to do the job. You don't have to go across the seas to be picked. We're all picked, right? We're all supposed to be witnesses. So when you tell yourself, this is really crazy, welcome to the club. It is, because it's not our idea. It's God's idea. Number three. Number three. Missions involves an unpopular message. Mission involves an unpopular message. Verse 2. I told you I'm going to spend a lot of time on the first few verses, and then we're going to really whip through the book here, okay? He says, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. This is one of the fundamental reasons why missions and evangelisms are not popular and not easy. Because it's hard to tell someone that they're in sin and that they're going to be judged by God unless they repent. And he says here, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So it's a great city that is wicked. Well, interesting. What do we know about Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, about 800 miles northeast of Samaria, where Jonah was. The Tigris River passed nearby. Today, today the city is near Mosul in Iraq. We've heard of Mosul a lot on the note. It's right there. Nineveh is right near there. Mosul. Nineveh was the largest city in antiquity, about 60 miles in circumference, and had a population of estimated about 600,000. Uh, Adelaide is, what, a million two? Is that right? Is that about right? So it's about half the size of Adelaide. It's exactly the size of Geneva, Switzerland. Just to give you an idea of its size. Jonah 3.4 tells us 
that it took three days to walk around it. This seems to have included greater Nineveh, like the, 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 you know, the, the outskirts, huge city, very spread out. It's like in Geneva, if you had to walk around the entire city, it would be much bigger than it looks on a map. And we read in chapter 1, verse 2, that it was a wicked city. In chapter 3, verse 8, we find out that it is a violent city. And in Nahum 1.1 and 3.1, it says that it's a bloody city. So, that's a really interesting description. Wicked, violent, and bloody. Assyria, to whom Nineveh belonged, was the cruelest country and the most idolatrous country of the ancient world. Let me give you some examples. King Ashurnasirpal II he was king of Assyria from 883 to 859 B.C., boasted about his cruelty. He said this, I'm quoting him, I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountains, I slaughtered them, and their blood I dyed the mount red like wool. Talking about an officer he captured, he says, and I quote the same guy, I flayed him, that means I tore the skin off his body, and I spread his skin on the wall of the city. Another guy, king, Shalmaneser II, 859-824, says this, quote, The heads of their warriors I cut off and piled them up against the wall of the city. Their young men and women I burned with fire. Kind of sounds like ISIS, doesn't it? It's kind of weird. How about Sennacherib, 705-781? to This is what he says. He wrote, I quote, I slit their throats like lambs. I cut their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the context of their gullets and entrails, the content of their gullets and entrails run down upon the white earth, their hands I cut off. Asher Paul says this, quote, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. This is what he did with his enemy. He pierced a hole right here, put a rope in it, put him in a kennel, and dragged him around town. This is what they did. National Geographic did an article on the Assyrian army some time back, and they tell the Assyrians were greatly feared in the ancient world. This is how it happened. Quote, The Assyrian army would walk slowly and would often take their families with them. They walked in total disorder, like a huge swirl. When they would come upon a village or a city, they would fall upon the city like a cloud of grasshoppers, destroying everything and everybody and take all the spoil and food, then move on to the next town. It is said they were so feared that entire towns preferred committing suicide than falling into their hands. An important thing to note is that in 760 and 722 B.C., the Assyrians had done several raids in Israel. In 722, the Assyrians finally invaded Israel, and in 612, the Babylonians invaded Assyria and defeated them. No wonder the Bible calls Nineveh the city of blood, Nahum 3.1, and notes her extreme cruelty. And they bragged about it too. Ashurnasirpal, the great king, says this, The great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, the great gods magnified my name, they made my rule powerful. 
And then Esar Hadan was even more boastful. Quote, I am powerful. I am all powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all the kings, the one of Ashur, Nabu, and Marduk. This guy had a major pride problem. Okay, major. So, with that, we see verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So, what was the nature of the message he was supposed to cry out? Chapter 3, verse 4. And Jonah began to go through the city in a day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. You know what the message is? So simple. This is the message of the gospel. You ready? Here it is. You're in sin. That's it. That's actually the beginning of the message. Oh, you can add this. And God is going to judge you and destroy you. That is true. The wages of sin is death. Physical death and eternal death. That is the beginning of the gospel. Someone must realize that they are a sinner before you give them the solution. God's love in Jesus Christ, who is willing to forgive them. So, Jonah, please go to that city and tell them that. Tell them you're wicked and you're cruel and the judgment of God is coming on you in 40 days. Now, why did God want Jonah to do this? Ah, good question. Chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, says God. See, this is amazing. God loves Nineveh. He hates their sin, but He loves the people and He loves them so much. He wants to save them, and the way to save them is by sending a messenger to preach the gospel to them. See, this is the principle, right? 2 Peter 3.9, God wants all people to be saved. Even really evil people. Interesting, huh? So just think of the people you can't stand the most. Can you think of people like that? Oh no, Christians, we're not supposed to have people like that. We do, okay? Just think of those people you just really can't stand. They need Christ so badly. That's probably why you can't stand them, because they don't know Christ. If they knew Christ, they'd be nice. Most people who know Christ are nice. Okay? God is still working on others, okay? Number four. Number four. Missions is counter-nature. Missions is counter-nature. Verse 3. We're really going through this book fast, aren't we? Look at this. But Jonah rose up and went to Nineveh. I'm getting no reaction here. Okay. Uh, do we have the same Bible? Okay. Okay. Okay, wait. Let me read this again. Okay. Take two. But Jonah rose up and went to Nineveh. Oh, thank you. Okay. 
Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarsus, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, what is going on here? Why did er- why on earth did Jonah run? I think he had two problems. Okay, missionaries have a lot of problems. He had two. Number one, he feared men. You know what? When you know how cruel Assyria is, do you really want to go there to try and preach the gospel? It's like if God had called you to say, I want you to go in the middle of ISIS and preach the gospel in the middle of Turkey and Iraq. Go see Ben whoever, Ben Laden. I want you to go and tell him he's a wicked, cruel sinner. What are you going to go? Are you crazy, God? You think I'm going to go? There's just no way I'm surviving. That's exactly what happened here. He's scared. He's just scared. I think he's just scared. I'd be. But there's a second problem. He did not understand the love of God. Jonah knew the Assyrians and their cruelty, and like all Jews, he hated them. He had a real hate problem. They were the enemies of Israel. They invaded Israel. It is even possible that members of Jonah's family were victims of some of the Assyrians' raids into the country already. And so when Jonah realizes God is going to grant them grace and forgiveness, he's going, wait a minute here. You're going to just forgive those cruel butchers? It's exactly as if in World War II, at the end of World War II, when six million Jews had been slaughtered, just imagine the scenario happening. God had called someone to say, hey, I want you to go and lead Hitler to Christ. And he's going to become a Christian after the slaughtering. And you are the agent. And suppose you're a Jew and God is asking you to do that. How are you going to feel about that? You're going to, what? Seriously? You're going to forgive a person like Hitler? God grants forgiveness to everybody who repent and come to him. See, Jonah did not understand the extent of God's compassion and mercy and grace in the lives of sinners. Joseph's problem is that he did not understand the nature of the holiness of God and the horror of sin. Actually, you know what? James 2.19 says that whoever keeps a whole law and yet sins on one point is as if he commits the whole, uh, if he commits, he, he sins against the whole law, right? So actually, one bad thought is as bad as massacring six million Jews. That's kind of a weird thing to say, but it's actually true. When you compare yourself to the holiness of God, how many sins contend you to hell? One, because God is holy. One sin makes you a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. So actually, it doesn't really matter the extent of your sin. Sin is sin. And the price to pay is the same. Because we've offended a holy God. I'm not diminishing what Hitler did, okay? You understand what I'm saying here? Just, I deserve hell just as much as Hitler does. So what does he do? Jonah says, "Eh, eh. (laughs) no way, Jose. I'm not going there. So you know what he does? He goes to Tarshish. Have you ever wondered why? 
there's a very specific reason as to why he goes to Tarshish. According to the Encyclopedia of Creation Science, Tarshish was a city port in the Mediterranean Sea, coast next to in Spain, southwestern Spain, once called the city of Tartessos. According to Herodotus and Strabo, Tartessos is today where Cadiz, or Cadiz is, very close to Gibraltar. It is 3,000 miles away from Joppa. Why did Jonah go there? The answer is Isaiah 66, 19. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. This is a mind-blowing verse, okay? Isaiah 66, 19 tells us why he goes there. And this is what it says. Isaiah, last, last chapter of Isaiah. I will set a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, is our name, Put, Lud, Mashesh, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlands, here we go, that have never heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. It's very interesting. This verse says that at that time, these cities, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Mashesh, Tubal, Javan, were distant lands that had not yet heard of the fame or of the glory of the God of Israel. And so Jonah's going, cool, I don't want to go to Nineveh, I'm going to flee to Tarshish, a town that has never heard ever of the name of God, of the Jews, and there I'll be able to hide and have my vacation. He's trying to run as far as he can from God. Problem is, Psalm 139 tells us that's impossible, you can't run from God, it's impossible. But he's very determined and methodical about his escape. So he goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship. He pays his fare. He goes down to the ship. And he says, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I am leaving. I am leaving. See, we do see here that missions is counter nature. There's a part of us that reacts and pulls away from it. It's true. I've already told you how many times I've had the same reaction. How many times have I backed up, backed off from doing what God has called me to do? I have a fear of man. I do. I like being popular. I like being liked. Not horrible, but it's true. You know, sometimes I think, Romans 1.16, why did Paul write this? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, maybe if he wrote it, maybe he had the same problem. Maybe sometimes he also felt ashamed. I'll bet you 10 to 1 sometimes he did. So, there you go. Missions is counter nature. It really is. <laughs> Number five. Number five. Missions, this is a really great point, molds the missionary. Is that what appears on the point there? Yeah. Missions molds the missionary. So, Jonah's finished with God. But God is not finished with Jonah. You see, missions is God's primary purpose on earth. We're supposed to preach the gospel until he returns. Now think about this. Jonah is an interesting little book, four chapters. Out of four chapters in the book, 
Do you know that only six verses are dedicated to the repentance of Nineveh? Only six verses. The rest of the story is all about Jonah. It's all about Jonah. And that makes me wonder if there are not two purposes to missions. One, to reach the lost. Fair. Number two, to mold the missionary. I mean, don't we say that trials are put there by God to mold us? Well, you know what? If you want a big trial, become a missionary. That's a big trial. And that molds the missionary. I'm amazed what happens next in the story. I mean, think about this. Let me ask you this question. Would it not have been easier for God to say, Oh, okay, Jonah is not a very um, open candidate for missions. I'll just pick someone else. God didn't pick someone else. He wanted Jonah for this job. And what we find out is that God is just as concerned about Jonah the man as he is about the city of Nineveh. God uses missions to win souls, but also to mold the missionary. In the next three to four chapters, we have what I call the crushing of the missionary. The crushing of Jonah. He does not understand the holy character of God. He does not understand that God loves all people. He doesn't understand that no one deserves His grace. But He is anxious to shed it on the people so that they would repent and believe in Him. So God decides to pursue Jonah to not leave him alone until he becomes a willing and happy missionary. So how does he do it? Okay, we're going to go real fast. Okay, here we go. So... Get your Bibles, and we're going to walk through the story really fast. Verse 4, there's a storm. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. So, God gets his attention. Then the sailors, verse 5, became afraid, and everyone cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and lay down. He was falling asleep. He was, he was taking a nap. The sailors are scared. This was a really, really bad storm. And Jonah is sleeping. You know what? Sin is very, very fatiguing. So the captain is angry in verse 6. The captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us and what that we will not perish. Now he's probably down there looking for stuff to throw off the ship because it's about to sink. And he sees Jonah sleeping. He's going, what is going on? How can you be sleeping through the storm? What's going on? You know, Jonah gets reprimanded by a pagan captain. Very interesting. The sailor's solution, verse 7, Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Very interesting. It was a pagan practice, a method that we don't have many records of. But anyway, they cast these lots and God uses a pagan method of lot throwing to point the finger to Jonah and get his attention. That's kind of amazing. Verse 8, so they said to him, Hey, Lot fell on Jonah. Tell us how now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? And what is your country and from what people are you? So they question him. And his answer in verse 9 is amazing. He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I am fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
When the men became extremely frightened and said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So he says to them, I'm running away from God. And they're going, Whoa, why are you doing that? The consequences are on us. So they're perplexed, verse 11. So they said, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. So look at Jonah's solution. It's unbelievable. Verse 12, He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on that account of me, the great storm has come upon you. You know what he's saying? Kill me. Just kill me. Suicide wish. He prefers dying than repenting. So the sailors start rowing, verse 13. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier. I mean, they were scared. They didn't want to throw them overboard. They didn't want want their gods to punish them for murder. So they row, but fails. Finally, they cry out to their God, verse 14. They call on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let... Thus perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So you know what they do in verse 15? They're scared, but look. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. Just like that. Calm storm. Soon as Jonah hit that water. Jonah was probably thinking, at last I could just die. And forget about this whole thing. (laughs) Nice try, Jonah. You didn't exactly die. So verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I mean, they saw that ocean get calm instantaneously. They're going, whoa. This is like, this is like for real. They realize something is going on here. And then verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. (laughs) Wow. What kind of fish? No one knows. Some say it was a carcharodon. Have you ever heard of that? Me neither. It's a massively huge shark that can grow up to 65 feet in length. They could theoretically swallow a man. But you know what? It says in the verse, the Lord appointed a great fish. I think God just created a fish. Whammo. He can do that. Jesus did it. Remember, he created fish? Dead fish. Here, he creates a live fish. Big one. Big one. So you know what happens? Let me, let me tell you this. If you're running away from the Lord and you're on a boat, and they throw you overboard, and a fish swallows you, and you're alive in the fish, you know what's going to happen? You're going to pray. Big time. (laughs) You are really going to pray, because you're going to be super, super scared. So that's what he does. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord God from the stomach of the fish. Wow. Of course, God really got his attention. Wow. 
And he said, I called out in my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of the shoal, and you heard my voice, for you have cast me into the deep, to the heart of the seas, and the currents engulfed me, and your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth and its bar was around me forever. But you have brought me up from my life from the pit, O Lord God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Yeah, man, he is really praying. You know, you've got to imagine yourself. I don't know if you've ever done this. I've imagined myself in the belly of this fish. I mean, just the smell. Disgusting, rotten, half-digested fish. Yuck. What he must have tasted. You know, I mean, you can't help but taste the slush in there. What he was tasting in his mouth just is like gross. Um, what he could feel, sliminess, weeds around his head, verse 5. Barometric pressure changing as he went up and down, verse 6. He was fainting away, verse 7. What he saw, he saw nothing, pitch black in the stomach of a whale. And what he heard, was he hearing the whale cry? I'm not good at whale cries, but I mean, was he hearing the cry as he was in there? And he was hearing the water slushing? I mean, what a nightmare. Can you imagine being stuck in that fish's stomach? Oh, he prayed and he repented. He repent, verse 8 and 9, idols can't help. I will worship you and sacrifice to you and you alone. I will be grateful to you. I'm sorry I wasn't grateful to you. I will obey you. I have a vow and I will pay the vow. And I recognize that salvation comes from you, verse 9. You see, God crushed Jonah to make him a willing and happy missionary. So this leads to point six. To point six, missions is always successful. Maybe I went too fast. Look what happens here. I'm going to come back to that point. I forgot the most important thing, basically, is verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. I mean, can you imagine? You're in the stomach and all of a sudden, blah, and you just come out with all the other stuff in the stomach and you kind of pull out of it and you're on a beach. It's just, it's just an amazing story. So what happens? Number three, uh, next one, yeah. Missions is always successful. Chapter three, look. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to the Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. (laughs) Wow. He made a beeline. He did not hesitate one iota. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He did it. You know what he did? He began to preach. He began to cry. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk, and Jonah began to go through the city. One day's walk, and he cried out and said, For forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
You know, I wonder why people listen to him this time. Number one, his physical appearance. Was his skin disfigured? Have you ever seen people that have been burned by acid or flames? I mean, did he look just like really strange? Maybe no more hair? I don't know. I mean, that's not unusual. Um, okay. But I mean, you know, did he just have this like almost weirdo, ghostly look about him? I mean, I just have no idea. I'm just like extrapolating here. But a personal testimony, you know, when someone gives you their personal testimony and it's really, really radical in their lives, they will tell it to you and you believe them. Well, this guy had a testimony like very few people have ever had. It's just the power of God working through him. So what was the nature of his, of his message? Same thing. Judgment. 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 So what happens? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robes from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and in nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let the men call upon God earnestly each way so that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that he will not perish. Wow. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared and would bring upon them. And he did not do it. You know what's interesting? Jonah preaches, the king repents. Jesus affirms that the king really repented. That God decides to spare the city. Jonah was a success. Jonah was a success. One of the greatest revivals in Old Testament history. You go, but we're not always successful. How can you say here that missions is always successful? Ah, because we have to understand what missions is. Missions, we said this all weekend, is not seeing the fruit. That's our desired result. Missions is being faithful to proclaim the truth. Whether they listen or not, Ezekiel said. Jesus, you remember, preached three years in Capernaum, condemned them to hell for disbelief. The point is, are we proclaiming the truth? That's the point. That is why missions is always successful. Because God has the ultimate and final decision. I mean, he says in Acts 16 that he opened the heart of Lydia that she might understand what she was hearing. God does that work. Amazing. And that leads to the final point. To the final point. Missions requires love. Very briefly. Chapter 4 is very simple to really understand. Chapter 4, but it gravely displeased Jonah and he became angry. Yeah, he was angry. He was angry. He was angry because his arch enemy had just been spared. That was really hard for him. He prayed to the Lord and said, please Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who really concerning calamity. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were going to save them and spare them. My enemies. 
Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me. Death is better to me than life. Wow, you know what he was not getting? He was not getting love. He was angry. I mean, it's interesting. God used him to spare his enemy, and he's angry. It's kind of interesting. You know what? Missionaries can have a major anger problem. They can. They really can. Do you know what he does? He says, verse 4, do you have a good reason to be angry? Look at this, verse 5. Then Jonah went up out of the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in a shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So he goes up there. He kind of thinks, well, maybe God will still judge us. So he goes up there and he makes a shelter. He's under a really hot sun. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from the discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. So it's kind of a, a little shed. The plant goes over him. He's really happy that God has just given him air conditioning. But God appointed now a warm And when dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant and it withered. And the sun came up. God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die again. Boy, this guy's got a major problem with wanting to die. Okay, so he wants to die again. Then God says to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, for which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals. You know what he's saying? He's saying this, Nineveh, you are sad about the plant dying, but sadly you are not sad about the people of Nineveh dying. You've got your priorities all wrong. Jonah, You are more concerned about your physical comfort than the spiritual damnation of an entire city. These are human beings, men, women, children, therefore the object of my love. Jonah, you must learn to love them. That's the lesson here. You must learn to love them. You must learn to be more burdened for the people than for your own comfort. Folks, that is a very difficult lesson to learn, even for missionaries. Because by nature, we like our comfort. And so there you have it. Incredible story of Jonah, the missionary. There are the points. Mission starts with God. Missions is accomplished through men. Missions involves an unpopular message. Missions is counter nature. Missions molds the missionary. Missions is always successful. And missions requires love. May God help us. Lord, we thank you. We worship you for this amazing story, for the lessons Jonah learned. Teach us the same lessons, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.